0: join me in prayer. (laughs) O great triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, You are holy, holy, holy. You are forever a holy God. You exist, have always existed, and will always exist. We thank You for Your greatness, Your glory, Your beauty, Your transcendence, your imminence. We thank You that You are with us and for us. We thank You that You have done everything that we need to give us these lives, to give us this faith, to give us this hope and this, these promises and this glorious eternity. We thank You for the Gospel and all of its truth. Father, thank You for, for knowing us and predestining us for calling us out of darkness into Your light. Jesus, thank You for willingly taking upon Yourself human flesh and living and dying and rising for us. Holy Spirit, thank You for Your work of opening our eyes, of causing us to be born again so that we might know these things. Spirit, I thank You for the fact that You have filled us to the full. I ask You now to empower me to preach on Your work of filling Your people. And that You would help us to live in this knowledge and this reality and in this power. Thank You for the resurrection of Jesus and what it means not just for our now, but for what it means for our future. And So convince us and convict us this morning by Your Word. May we submit ourselves to Your truth that we might learn to obey You, that we might learn to please You. For that is our greatest desire. And it's to that end we ask You to speak to us from Your Word now. In Jesus' great name, Amen. Amen. Good morning, church family. What a joy to worship our resurrected Savior together. Go ahead and turn in your copy of Scripture. Romans chapter 8. We're going to study God's sufficient Word together. Romans chapter 8. This morning we're looking at verses 5 through 11. I'm going to read starting in verse 1 of Romans 8 so that we can get the entire context and those four verses that we looked at last week so that we get a running start into verse 5. So Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. What a privilege to read God's Word over you this morning. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of our Creator and Redeemer. May he mold us according to its truth. Well, notice in verse 5 that Paul begins with the word for. F O R. This indicates that Paul is continuing to build on what he said in verses one through four. So at the end of verse four, Paul said that the requirements of God's law have been fulfilled for us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So these benefits are true for those who do not walk according to the flesh, but who walk according to the Spirit. So I think this four at the beginning of verse five is explaining why Christians don't walk according to the flesh, but now walk according to the Spirit. It's because, very simply, they're no longer in the flesh, but they are in the Spirit. In other words, this is part of our identity that Paul is highlighting. We are no longer in the flesh, but we are in the Spirit. How you live flows out of who you are and where you are. If you are in the flesh, you live according to the flesh. But if you are in the Spirit, you live according to the Spirit. Who you are and where you are makes all the difference in how you live. And so in these verses, Paul continues to give us assurance of our salvation by reminding us of what God has done for us and what God will do for us in Jesus. The goal of these verses is not to lay any burdens on us at all. You will notice there are no commands in this passage. No commands here. No imperatives. These are all statements of fact in verses 5-11. through And so the goal of this section, I think, is to remind us of who we are and what God has done. These verses are full of statements of fact about who we are and who we are not as believers. And so let me highlight three truths from these verses that I think should provide further grounds for assurance that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So just a quick review, remember last week in verses 1 through 4, we saw three truths in those verses about what God has done. We saw last week that God has removed our condemnation. We saw that God has set us free from sin and death. And we saw that God has fulfilled His law for us in Jesus. God has done all of this for us. Well, Paul continues to talk about who we are in Jesus. And so notice three truths that I want to highlight in this passage for us. Number one, in Jesus, we are no longer in the flesh. In Jesus, we are no longer in the flesh. And I get that phrase, in Jesus, all the way back up in verse 1. This is who we are in Christ. In Christ, we are no longer in the flesh. And so in verses 5-8, through Paul contrasts the only true type of people who exist in the world. There are only two kinds of people according to Paul. There are those who live according to the flesh, and there are those who live according to the Spirit. And Paul's point is that we are no longer those who live according to the flesh. Now, when Paul uses the word flesh, he isn't talking about our physical skin. He's not talking about our physical body. He's referring to our sinful nature and our sinful desires. Our flesh is part of every one of us that is opposed to God and His ways. And the bad news is that every one of us was born with this sinful flesh. We are in our father Adam, every one of us. We inherited this sin nature from Adam. And Paul says in verse 5 that when we live according to the flesh, we have our minds set on the things of the flesh. Fleshly people think about the things of the flesh. How they can please their flesh. Their selfish desires. And the reality is this is every one of our defaults. Every chance we get, our mind goes to thinking about our sinful and selfish cravings, which is why Paul is going to tell us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that we ought to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. Our mind is very important. We're going to mention that again in just a moment. But this this is not very fun to talk about. What Paul says here about our sinful flesh is is not fun to talk about, but just notice for a few minutes how Paul highlights some deadly characteristics of our sinful flesh. Notice in verse 6, he says that to set the mind on the flesh, to think about our sinful cravings, to give in to those natural desires of our sin nature, Paul says, is death. To set the mind on the flesh is death. And then notice four truths in verses seven and eight about someone who is setting their mind on the flesh, who is of the flesh. So this is who we all once were. So if you like subpoints, here four subpoints under the first point. First, those who set the mind on the flesh are hostile to God. Notice verse seven. For the mind that is set on the flesh, is hostile toward God. Now, does this sound extreme to you? Does Paul really mean hostile, or is he just trying to be shocking here? See, hostile is such a hostile word. This shows, I think, that our flesh opposes the things of God. This is who we all once were enemies of god literally hostile to him this is our default in the flesh paul says if you set your mind on the things of the flesh you are hostile to god secondly those who set their mind on the flesh do not submit to god's law notice how paul states this is a fact in verse 7 if your mind is set on the flesh paul says you do not submit to the law of God. You do not obey God if your mind is on the flesh. No matter what you do outwardly, you aren't submitted to God's law if your mind is on your sinful desires. But that's not all. Notice number three, those who set their mind on the flesh cannot submit to God's law. Paul says not only you don't submit to God's law, but you cannot in the flesh. So not only does the mind set on the flesh not submit to God's law, but Paul says it's not able to. This is a statement about ability. The mind set on the flesh is not even able to obey God. This is such an important truth to learn. Because in our flesh, apart from the spirit of God dwelling in us that Paul is about to get to, in our natural state, we are neither willing nor able to obey God and submit to him an unbeliever someone who doesn't have the spirit of Christ someone who is in the flesh is neither willing nor able to obey God and submit to him you see I used to think before I became a Christian that I could do anything I wanted I fooled myself into thinking that if I wanted to obey God I could I just don't want to if I wanted to be generous I could if I wanted to be humble, I could. But that is not the truth for those in the flesh. They are enslaved to their flesh. They are unable to obey God. The mindset on the flesh is neither willing nor able to submit to God. Fleshly people can only submit to their flesh. And thus, number four, those who set their mind on the flesh cannot please God. Verse 8 is as matter of fact as possible. Paul says, we were once unable to please God. So this all raises the question of, can an unbeliever please God by anything they do? Is there any way for an unbeliever to please God by anything they do? And of course, the answer, according to this verse, is they cannot. Even if they outwardly obey some of God's laws or do some great works, Their motive is not to please and glorify God and thus they cannot please Him. As Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so Paul is saying this is who we all once were. We were enslaved to our sinful flesh so that our minds were set on the flesh and thus we were characterized by, verse 6, death. We were hostile to God unable to please Him. And so Paul is saying there is a radical and essential difference between someone who is a Christian and someone who is not a Christian. Someone who is a Christian sets their minds on things of the Spirit, but someone who is not set their minds only on the things that please their sinful flesh. They are hostile to God and they cannot please Him. However, Paul's point is that those who set their mind on the Spirit have life and peace with God. And he says, this is who we are now. This is what God has done. That He has given us His Spirit so that we now set our minds on the things of the Spirit so that we have life and peace. This is how we live now, that there is no condemnation. because God has so graciously given us of His Spirit. And so this first point, Paul is contrasting who we once were with who he's about to say we are now. We are of the Spirit. We set our minds on the things of the Spirit so that we can obey God, so that we can please God. You see, you've got to realize that even though we still battle our flesh, we've talked about this at the end of chapter 7, even though we still have a sin nature and we still battle it, we, we are not of the flesh. We are not setting our minds on the things of the flesh continually, we have been changed. And it's this change that's been wrought about by the work of Christ, by the power of the Spirit that Paul is now going to highlight. And so notice, secondly, in Jesus, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus, we're no longer of the flesh, but in Jesus... We are of the Spirit. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so notice the contrast that Paul gives here in verse 9. Paul reassures his readers that they are no longer of the flesh and thus no longer of death. You, however, he says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So the word if in verse 9, it doesn't imply uncertainty, but rather it's supposed to imply certainty. You could actually translate this as since. Since the Spirit of God dwells in you, you know you belong to Christ. So what is the most fundamental difference between a Christian and someone who is not a Christian? What is the most fundamental difference? Well, a Christian is someone who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. A Christian is someone who has the Spirit. All Christians have the full presence and power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Listen, there are no empty Christians. To be in the Spirit, as Paul says it, is to have the Spirit in you. But those who are not Christians, those who do not follow Jesus, those who are in the flesh, Paul says, do not have the presence and power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Paul says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Could it be any clearer? If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Christ. This is absolutely stunning news i think oftentimes we're taught that we should sort of seek new and fresh movements of the spirit and I, I i love that thought we should be seeking for the spirit to move in new awakenings in our life but i think part of the time most of the time maybe is simply realizing the promise and power of the holy spirit that's already with us It's like most of the battle, like we live constantly with the power of the Holy Spirit empowering us to do all the things that God has called us to do. Always. It's not that we need some fresh or new movement of the Spirit. It's that we need to realize and know and believe and trust in that we already have been given the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. This is absolutely stunning news. The Holy Spirit is fully God as the third person of the Trinity. And so as Christians, we have God dwelling in us and with us. In fact, notice how Paul teaches on the nature of the Trinity in verses 9-11. through In verse 9, we read about the Spirit of God dwelling in us. But then in the second half of verse 9, Paul calls the Spirit of God the Spirit of Christ. Which is it? The Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ? And the answer is yes. In verse 11, notice the Spirit is called the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead. A clear reference to God the Father. And so all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned in these verses as active and dwelling in us, giving us life and peace with God. This is glorious truth that often eludes our thinking and our affections. How often do you ponder this? How often do you consider the presence and power of the spirit in your life and the reason this is so glorious friends is because on our own we are helpless on our own we gravitate to our sinful nature left to ourselves friends the christian life is not just hard it is impossible according to verse eight you can't obey god on your own you can't i can't it is impossible We cannot obey God. We cannot live a life pleasing to Him apart from His help. But we have that help is Paul's point. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And so we have God's Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, continually providing the source of life and peace and joy. The One who breathes life into the entire universe is the One who dwells in us by faith in Jesus. And consider the word dwell. This means to make yourself at home. So this isn't describing a quick stay, but a permanent residence. Friends, it is so easy to get discouraged when we think about what we don't have. But if you're in Christ, consider what you do have this morning. You do have The Spirit dwelling in you, living in you, permanent residence in your life. Jesus died and rose again from the dead in order to give you the presence and power of the Holy Spirit to enable you to obey God and please God. To enable you to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. And Paul is writing to give his readers confidence and assurance in this fact. The Spirit is in you, and you are in the Spirit. The Spirit is in you and you are in the Spirit. This is our fundamental identity. And this is how we battle our natural desire for our flesh. This is how we make war. This is how we wrestle with our sin as we prayed earlier. We believe this truth that the Spirit dwells in us. Do you believe this, friends? Do you believe this truth? Do you belong to Christ? Are you indwelt by the Holy Spirit? And so the contrast between the flesh and the Spirit is Paul's main point here. We were once of the flesh, only of the flesh, and could only do what our flesh wanted to, which was not obey and please God. But now, you, however, are in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in you, so that you can now live that life of peace and obey and please God. There's one last nugget he gives us here in verse 11. He contrasts this flesh and spirit, but then he, he gives us this truth about something God will do because these things are true. And notice the third truth. In Jesus, we will be raised from the dead. In Jesus, we will be raised from the dead. So verse 11 tells us what is true of us if we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. Notice what God will do. Here's a promise. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Notice three glorious truths in verse 11. These aren't on the screen, so if you're taking notes, you can jot these down. First, notice in verse 11, Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, of course, the great Romans 8 contains teaching on the resurrection of Jesus. Here in verse 11 and again in verse 34, Paul declares to us the truth of Jesus' resurrection and its importance for our lives. The resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of our faith and this is what we celebrate as believers each and every Sunday. Jesus was raised from the dead. This is the heart of our faith. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died in the place of sinners and He got up out of the tomb, defeated death, hell, and the grave and is seated at the right hand of the Father sustaining the universe by His powerful word. The historical event of the resurrection declares to us that there is none like Jesus. There is no one as great and glorious and worthy of our trusting in, worthy of our total devotion. There is no one more worthy of our boasting in and glorying in. There is no one more satisfying to trust in. The bodily resurrection of Jesus is validation of everything Jesus said and did throughout His life. That he got up out of the tomb is proof that he can and should be trusted. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus is not a fairy tale. It's not a cleverly devised myth. It is a fact, it is a reality that is indisputably true. And Paul is grounding all of this teaching about who we are in the fact of the resurrection of Jesus. Paul declares it to us again in verse 11. Here's where our assurance lies. Here's where our assurance rests. Jesus was raised from the dead. But notice secondly, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead also dwells in us. This is the stunning reality that Paul mentions in verse 11. The spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, takes up residence in our lives. We have access to resurrection power right now. Notice the phrase in verse 11, through His Spirit. How will we be given life? Through His Spirit. Friends, what in your life have you sort of given up on because you don't think you have the power to do What addiction have you allowed to take residence in your life unchallenged? Friends, in Jesus, we have resurrection power coursing through our life. What obedience? Have you just sort of made the excuse that you're not really good at that, you'll let other people do that? I'm not good at hospitality. I'm not good at evangelism. I'm not good at Scripture memory. I'm not good at being generous. We have resurrection power enabling us to do all that God has called us to do. There are no calls to obedience in all of Scripture for which the power to do them is not available to you and me every day of our lives. If God calls you to it, He will give you the strength to do it. What habit or sin pervades your heart? In Jesus, we have access to power that caused a dead man to get up from the grave. There's nothing by the power of the Spirit you cannot do. The resurrection proves that God can change you. You have everything you need and more. I have everything I need and more. If you are trusting in Jesus, the Spirit of God is dwelling in you. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. But notice third and finally, Paul says we will be raised physically just like Jesus was raised we will be raised physically just like Jesus was raised and so here's the truth Paul is getting at in verse 11 he says he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also do what will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you Paul says since the spirit dwells in us the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, we are guaranteed our own resurrection from the dead. Now notice carefully that Paul is referring to physical resurrection here. He's referring to physical resurrection of our physical bodies. This is not a reference to spiritual resurrection, to our salvation. This is a reference to the day when we will be bodily raised when Jesus returns. On that day, our struggle with our sinful flesh will be completely done. Paul says, We'll also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in us. Friends, God has saved us, he is saving us, and he will one day finally save us. Salvation is past present and future he will raise our physical bodies and we will be fully glorified with him we have been saved from the penalty of sin we are being saved from the power of sin and we will be saved from the presence of sin listen God is not going to leave your body in the grave since Jesus was raised and since the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you can be confident that you also will be resurrected with Jesus. And friends, you don't get this future blessing by being good and moral. The only way to get this is in union with Jesus. Those who are in Christ will be raised just like Christ was raised. Christians, we never have to fear death or condemnation Because Jesus died and Jesus was resurrected. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus should give us this massive hope that the best is always yet to come for Christians. The best is always yet to come. Yes, life in this fallen world will be full of sorrow and pain and battling our sinful flesh, but there is coming a day when we will be glorified. All wrongs will be righted. All tears wiped away. And we can be confident of this because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. The Spirit dwells in you, Paul says. You're no longer of the flesh, but you are in the Spirit and the Spirit is in you. So before we close with some application, think just for a second about life after death. Paul says there is life after death. After we die, there will either be more death or there will be life and peace. There will either be condemnation or there will be peace. Verse 11 tells us the truth about how we can know what the afterlife will be like for us. Those who are of the flesh will get death and condemnation. Those who are of the Spirit will get life and peace and resurrection. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, I hope this passage creates in you a thirst that nothing in this world can satisfy. I hope there is a a thirst being created in you by God's Word that nothing in all creation could satisfy in you. And I pray you would run to Jesus and put your trust in Him alone and ask Him to save you. If you are trusting in Jesus today, this incredibly good news is intended to provide massive encouragement and assurance so that we would go on trusting and following Jesus to the end. We have this assurance that the Spirit of God is dwelling in us. Because of Jesus, we get no condemnation now. We get the power of the Spirit in our lives, and we get the promise of bodily resurrection to come. We have so much more than we could ever imagine in Jesus. He has done all of this in spite of how unworthy and sinful we are. What a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. So how do we apply this passage? What difference should this passage make in our lives? Four quick, and I mean quick, application thoughts. Number one, praise God that you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. I don't know about you, but I far too often forget this truth. I am guilty of neglecting And not remembering and realizing that I have the Spirit of God dwelling in me. And every time I'm confronted with what God wants me to do and I say I can't or I won't, I'm denying this reality that the Spirit dwells in me. What a truth. Praise God for it. Secondly, plead with God daily to help you walk according to the Spirit plead with God daily to help you be in tune with the Spirit. The Spirit is in you, and you are in the Spirit. But friends, it is a daily battle to walk in the ways of the Spirit. It is a daily battle to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. We need the Spirit to help us walk by the Spirit and set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Yes, we have the Spirit dwelling in us, but we need Him to help us realize that and embrace that and live in the power of the Spirit. We need the Spirit to help us walk in the ways of the Spirit. Third, be careful what you think about. Be careful what fills your mind. Friends, our thoughts are more important than we often realize. According to this passage, our thoughts reflect our identity, who we are. You can tell who you are by what you think about, Paul says. And the reality is, the scary thing is, we all default to thinking about our sinful flesh. But in the Spirit, we are to set our minds on what is true and beautiful and lovely. And so may God transform us by the renewing, of our minds so that we would constantly set our minds on the things of the spirit fourth and finally your life should be different your and my life should be different you see the contrast between those of the flesh and those of the spirit this contrast should be significant There should be a radical difference, friends, between our lives and the lives of the unbelievers that we know. And if not, why not? We have the Spirit of the One who raised Jesus from the dead in us. Why are our lives not more different, more radical, more risk-taking, more full of faith, more full of joy and peace? The practical difference that this should make is where Paul turns that we will, God willing, see starting next week. But let me just read it as we we close. Look at verse 12. So then, brothers, because these things are true, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray for the miraculous in this room right now. I pray that your Spirit would bear witness with our spirit that we are sons of God pray that Your Spirit would bear witness with our spirit that we have this glorious inheritance, this glorious assurance that the Spirit dwells in us. And oh God, where that assurance is not present, where that reality is not true in lives, I pray that conviction of sin would be present. And I pray for those in this room who've been playing games, who've been saying they're a Christian but are not, I pray that you would open their eyes to the beauty and glory of Christ and they would turn away from everything that charms them most to Jesus. Lord, thank you for these truths. Lord, thank you for the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would fill us, that you would enable us to walk by the Spirit so that we may not please the desires of our flesh, but that we might please you, our Creator and our Redeemer. You have been so good to us. You have given us so much. Forgive us for forgetting these truths and not living in their good. We need you. And we ask for your help to live according to the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing Jesus paid it all.